Hey, elementary kids, you guys can head out. want to take a second to, uh, to brag on my boy. Uh, I, was, I wasn't here last week because my son was running the Boston Marathon. And uh, yeah, it was a really cool experience. Uh, and I uh, got to experience that with some of his high school teammates uh, that came up to support him and watch him. And so it's kind of this uh, culmination of uh, years kind of since middle school coaching him and all kinds of stuff and being his high school coach and watching him run in college to, to getting to do this, this Boston Marathon. Might be the last marathon he ever does. But uh, we got it done, and it was super fun. So it's uh, good to be back here with you guys this morning. Um, In his book, The Journey of Desire, John Eldridge writes this. He said, we are made in the image of God. We carry within us the desire for our true life of intimacy and adventure. To say we want less than that is to lie. As Justin mentioned last week, to be human is to desire and to long for things. All of us are just constantly desiring and longing. God put this soul hunger in each one of us for connection, for intimacy, for worship, for meaning, and for purpose. And while most of us can acknowledge the truth of that reality, it's also true to say that we all struggle with misplaced desires. All of us start our lives trying to fill this void, this longing with something, right? Before we know that Jesus is that answer, for me as a kid, I I really tried to fill the void in my life. My biggest desire, my greatest thirst was to be seen and known. That's what I wanted when I was a kid. And so I strove to achieve and be recognized for my athletic accomplishments It gave me some sense of belonging and purpose. A lot of times it gave me the affirmation that I was looking for as a young man. But it was an endless pursuit where I was really never completely satisfied because the reality is that I wasn't always successful, right? Depending on the level of competition, sometimes I didn't measure up. And so when I wasn't successful and I wasn't getting the pats on the back, who was I? And these misplaced desires carry over into our faith and our church life as well, into something that I like to call the Jesus and syndrome. We may say that Jesus is enough and that he's sufficient for us to have some sense of contentment in life, but our actions and our pursuits would tell a different story. We might say we're Christians, the people around us at work or school or whatever might know that that's kind of what we put forth but they would also look at our life and say, yeah, but it seems like they need a few more other things to really be okay. Whether that's a dating relationship or a marriage or a satisfying career or a certain income, position or title, a car or house that has a look of success, having kids or even better yet, having kids that obey you and make you look like great parents, or even a growing and thriving church or ministry, if we stripped it all away and had only Jesus, how content would our hearts truly be? 
Now, there are hundreds of millions of Christians in this world that live on less than $2 a day that could probably honestly tell you (laughs) how they feel about that and what that reality is like. For all of us living in the richest country the world has ever known, it gets a little bit more complicated, doesn't it? To truly be able to say, if I only had Jesus, that would be sufficient. Even as people gathered around Jesus during his ministry, folks were coming to him with all kinds of motives, looking to fill the tank of their various desires. So I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles uh, again to John chapter 6. It's page 1518 in your pew Bibles. And John 6 begins with this large crowd following Jesus. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So just hang on to that page. We're going to be back in there a lot. But why were the crowds there? The crowds were there to either be physically healed themselves or just to watch the next spectacle. And it was really entertaining following Jesus around. I mean, you never knew exactly what he's going to do. And as you read on, as this crowd's kind of gathering, Jesus kind of quickly realizes that there's going to be some issues they're going to have to figure out. And if you've watched The Chosen, you've seen this too. Like, they start buzzing around. Like, how are we going to feed all these people? Like... There's too many people here, and we we don't have enough near enough food to take care of them. So we all know what happens next, and if you keep reading in John 6, is that Jesus takes, you know, the five little loaves of bread and two fish, and and he miraculously feeds over 10,000 people with men, women, and children, um, and, and has leftovers, okay? It was more than enough for everyone. And the miracle that, that was carried in that message was that Jesus provides everything we need, and then some. And then from there, you have the whole walking on water event that plays out. Um, Eventually, they land on the other side in the town of Capernaum, where we pick up the conversation in verse 25, and, and the frenzied crowds have found him again. They followed him around to the other side of the shore. So in in verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So the crowd asks him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And that's a really good question because they saw the disciples get into the boat and leave, but Jesus wasn't in it. <laughs> so as far as they know, they missed the whole walking on the water thing. They have no clue how Jesus got to the other side, okay? So they ask this question, but Jesus doesn't answer that question at all. He actually replies by telling them why they're there. And the phrase translated at the beginning of 27 very truly 
is more accurately this, most solemnly, I tell you. With a heavy heart, I tell you. And then he reveals the motives of their heart. He says, you're here because you got your fill of food yesterday and you're back for more. I know why you're here. They call him rabbi, but they're treating him like the head baker at Panera, basically. <laughs> and God does this in our lives quite often. We think we're the one asking the questions. And then he turns the mirror back around on us and reveals the motives of our heart. And Jesus is telling the crowd, you guys missed the bigger picture yesterday is when this event happened, <laughs> that miraculous feeding. You guys are just spiritually short-sighted on what's really going on here. How so? Well, verse 27 is really key. He says, do not work for food that spoils. Okay? Temporary satisfaction comes in many different forms, doesn't it? It can come in the form of, of money or experiences or adventure or sex or careers or approval even going to church because it makes you feel better or like you're a good person. And not all those things are inherently bad, but what are we hoping these things will do for us? What are we hoping those temporary satisfactions will do for us? I know for me, I use temporary worldly things to get back to what I call level. Okay? Okay? You would think that I would know better, right, being a pastor, right? But I often want the temporary satisfaction because I just don't like not feeling okay. So when I feel like there's kind of some disturbance in my spirit or my soul, it drives me crazy. <laughs> and going to God can feel hard. And honestly, for me, just not quick enough to relieve my discomfort whatever ache or longing that I've got in my soul to be seen or heard or known or loved in that moment. And so more often than I want to admit, I reach for the things that I know won't last, but are quick and don't demand as much. So I want to ask you guys a question. I'll put it up on the screen for you. How are we able to blow through the flashing red warning signs that what we're pursuing won't give us what we really need. Take me through that thought process in your mind. You've got this sense of uncertainty in you and you know what you're going to go reach for isn't going to give you ultimately what it is you want maybe because you've even done it before and you've realized it but you'd still do it again <laughs> and again what is it that's going on in your mind that helps you just kind of blow through those red lights yeah dave Yeah. yeah, I think it's kind of that way for me. It's like I'm in there, I'm not feeling like there's something missing or I'm not satisfied with the situation or I'm 
Yeah, so some of it's related to a, a, our sense of desperateness in the moment. Yeah. What else is going through our minds sometimes? Yeah. <laughs> too much selfishness and not enough Jesus. All right, everybody, we can go home now. That sums it all up right there, right? Yeah, Tyler? Tunnel vision. Mm, yeah, yeah, whatever it is we're craving, we get to get tunnel vision for it, yeah. I don't think anything's going to fill me up. Yeah. 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 He's just saying nothing goes through your mind. The pain is just so loud in your head, then all you can think of is just getting relief, right, in that moment. I think C.S. Lewis has a quote about that, about pain, you know, will shouts at us, right, and will be, uh, and demands that we do something about it. Yeah, so we've all been there. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, I was talking with Justin about this message the other day and he just reminded me of this reality of you know they talk about like a an airplane right when it takes off and it's heading in a path if you just change it one degree that path you know they were supposed to go to atlanta and you, you change it by one degree over time it just gets wider and wider the gap and they end up in who knows where right and that's the way life is a lot like we don't nobody wakes up in the morning thinking oh man i'd really like to have an affair today <laughs> it, it's just one itty bitty choice a slight degree off and then continued choices and all of a sudden you find yourself in places that you never thought you'd be you know when you see fractured relationships all around you and you wonder how did I get here and those misplaced desires and temporary satisfactions how much time energy and toil do we put into the pursuit of those things Maybe more concerning, how much damage is done in the pursuit of misplaced desire. King Solomon, some of you guys have heard of, the wealthiest king in the history of Israel. He could certainly relate to this temptation. I want you to turn your Bibles over to Ecclesiastes 2. Kind of stick a finger in John 6. Ecclesiastes 2 is page 951. This is a man who had anything that he wanted. Starting in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. Uh, verse 4. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces I acquired, male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all of my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, 
everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. God's been literally trying to warn us about this temptation of pursuing worldly things for thousands of years. But sometimes it's, it's kind of a lesson that we have to learn on our own, right? We humans are drawn to the temporary. I was listening to a, a message by Alistair Begg the other day, and he, he had this illustration, so I want to share it with you this morning. I'm kind of tweaking it a bit for our context. But he said, what if you had like a, up front here, we had a bunch of different booths, and above each booth it had a sign. So imagine over there, there's a sign that at a booth that said, free food, like all the food you want. The next booth, free money. We have one over here that said, free internet shopping at your favorite store all day, anything you want. Over here it said, free chief season tickets forever, okay? And then way over here in this corner little booth it said, free spiritual fulfillment. And I said, okay, after the service, Go whatever booth you want to go to, right? Even in the church, <laughs> we would wrestle, wouldn't we? Thinking, mm, man, some people are smart. You're thinking, well, if you get all the money, I can get all of this, right, that I wanted, right? I'm thinking, sweetie, chief season tickets forever, come on. What's my point? <laughs> my point is, is that we're no better than the crowd following Jesus, looking for the next Miracle, the next free meal. How much time in our week do we put into matters of our spiritual life, our soul, in comparison to other distractions? I don't know about you guys, but do you guys get the, the Sunday morning weekly report on how much time you spent on social media? <laughs> what if you got one of those on Sunday morning that showed you how much time you actually spent in the presence of God in a week? And you put those two side by side. What would those two numbers look like? What would they tell you about your life and where you're putting your hope? Work for food that endures to eternal life. Jesus has food for us that only he can give us. And we're over in the corner filling ourselves with things that are going to spoil, that aren't going to last. When God is standing right in front of us, offering himself, but honestly, most of the time, we just don't want him. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And a couple of years ago, I did a, a sermon series really kind of based on that passage, and I, I made the point again and again is that all of us want the life, right? Who doesn't want the abundant life that God offers? And I said, we want some of the truth, <laughs> but most of us want to do it our way, right? We want the life. Yeah, we want some of the truth, but we'd really like just to do it our way if we could. We like control, and we think we know what's best for us and what will make us the most happy. And we like to do it on our terms. Which is why we like the question that the crowd asks in verse 28, back in, back in John 6, if you've held on to that with me. 
So Jesus tells them that, you know, hey, you're, you're here because you're looking for the loaves. Verse 28. Then they asked him, what must me do to do the works God requires? Basically, they're saying this. God, give us the three easy steps. What are the three easy steps to satisfaction? Just give us the formula. What do we got to do? What's, let me ask you this. What's the dangerous assumption in that approach? What's that? We can do it on that we can do it on our own, right? God, if you just give me the things that I have to do in order to whatever, fill in the blank, right? The dangerous assumption is that if you give me the list, that I could pull it off. That I don't really need a savior. Again, as, that, as uh, Pastor Alistair Begg, uh, he, he correctly assesses what we're going to see in verse 29 is that Jesus' reply to that question blows a hole through that ridiculous notion, <laughs> which is why we don't like the answer that he gives in verse 29. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Just believe. Trust me. Receive the gift. You don't have to do anything. And it gets back to what's the starting point in our spiritual life. What's the starting point in our spiritual life? When we wake up in the morning and our eyes pop open, is our starting point action or is our starting point trust? It's a big distinction and difference. Where does obedience flow from in our life and to what end? We try to do the right things to honor God so that life works out for us? Or is our obedience to God fueled by trust and because he's worthy of our devotion? And a grateful certainty that he's already given us more than we deserve. Do you have that? A grateful certainty that he's already given you more than you deserve. It reminds me of the story of, the story of uh, Mary and Martha, right? A lot of people are familiar with this. So Jesus and the boys pop in for a visit. And Martha, it just sends her into a tizzy because she's like, I got to feed all these people. So she immediately goes to the kitchen and starts cooking and making the food, right? Somebody's got to do it. But her sister Mary is in there just sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him as he teaches, and Martha's in the kitchen, and she is just boiling, man. She is so mad. You know how that is. I know what it's like, right, when you're doing a chore, and you're looking around at everybody else in your house being like, anybody see me doing this? Anybody want to help? Right? You know what starts to stir around in you. And so Martha goes up to Jesus and says, would you tell my lazy sister to get in here and help me get this stuff done? And Jesus replies to her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, which, which makes me believe that it's more than just this meal that she's worried and upset about. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. 
You see, Mary was there to receive. That was her posture. And remember in verse 27 of of chapter 6, Jesus said that the food that leads to eternal life, the Son of Man will give to you. It's not something you have to work for. It's something that you receive. I love this illustration I heard uh, about a tree. So the roots of a tree are underground, right? And they're drawing from the nutrients and the moisture in the soil to supply the rest of the tree with what it needs to grow and thrive. And the roots are somewhat limited, right? They can't run all over the place to find the water and the nutrients. They, they kind of just kind of have to take whatever's around and receive it and pass it on. Martha was fretting about making a meal that would only temporarily satisfy the hunger of her guests. Right? Like this was lunch and they were going to eat and then at dinner they're going to be hungry again. While Mary was soaking up spiritual nutrients (laughs) that she could pass on to others that might satisfy their soul for a lifetime, she chose the better bread. The words of Jesus. And after all of this explaining and solemn warnings that Jesus was giving the crowd, imagine the frustration of being asked another misguided question in verse 30. The crowd says, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. What sign will you give that we will see it and believe you? Oh, you mean besides the sign I gave you yesterday where I fed thousands of people and walked on water? (laughs) You guys are killing me here. Give me a break. You see, we hard-hearted humans are always looking for more evidence. As the old saying goes, seeing is believing, right? All these questions are just a smokescreen. I don't know if you've ever sat down with people and, and you've, you've had a conversation about their faith, and they just throw out the, but what ifs, but what about that, and what if, I'm just like, this is just all smokescreens, <laughs> These are just all distractions from you having to to deal with the reality of who Jesus is and what it means for your life. It is not want of evidence, but want of heart that holds people back from Christ. If we had all of the answers to every question that we could ever ask and thousands of signs of powerful things from God... we would still have to believe and trust and ultimately surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. And that's where the tension usually lies. We don't want to give up control. We'd rather take our occasional meal 
then surrendered to the bread of life himself, trusting that he's enough. And this tension plays out in a scene recorded in Luke chapter 16. You can turn your Bibles there. It's page 1492. Luke 16. I'll kind of set up the story. Jesus tells a story about this rich man and this beggar named Lazarus that used to beg outside of his gates. And the beggar dies and goes to heaven, or they describe it to, to Abraham's side. And then later on, the rich man dies and winds up in hell, and it's miserable. And he's begging Father Abraham to tell Lazarus to dip his finger in the water to cool his tongue because it's just relentlessly torturous there. But Abraham says, sorry, there's this gap, this chasm between us that we can't, trans we can't go from one place to another. So starting in verse 27, the rich man says, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I... For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead and people were not convinced, right? Not everybody that heard that story or saw the result of that reality changed. What Jesus is saying in that story, guys, is that all that is needed for salvation is in this book. The answers we have for life to fulfill every longing and desire are provided for us. I love the way Paul explains it in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. I'm just going to read this for you. Paul writes, as for you, that means all people, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, all right? Temporary satisfaction. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, before we'd done anything to deserve it. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming days, coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We don't need another sign 
to trust that God has our best interest in mind and can provide better satisfaction than the things of this world. All we have to do is look at the sign of the cross and the empty tomb and believe. Guys, your boyfriend or girlfriend didn't die for you. Your car, your career, your bank account didn't lay its life down. Your accomplishments or the approval of others didn't do it either. Only Jesus died for you. Only God created you. Only God knows you. Only God loves you unconditionally and wired you with a void that only he could fill. And he's calling to you. God is standing right before you here this morning. And he's saying, just believe in the one that I sent. I'm desperately trying to keep you from scurrying around and running after things that I know will not satisfy you. Listen to the Father's heart. I want to save you from the pain of chasing after something you are hoping will do the trick. And I know it won't. And I'm begging you to not put your hope in food that's going to spoil. When people talk about, you know, why, why God would come up with so many, like, regulations and laws and things that we have to follow, like, what a mean parent he is. You know, his heart behind it is, guys, I'm telling you these things because I don't want you to suffer. Trust me. Look back at John 6 as we finish this last couple verses today, verses 32 and 33. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying to the people of Israel, Moses didn't save you. What saved you was that the bread of God, Jesus, came down from heaven and gave his life for you, for the world. The bread we are searching for, the bread we are searching for most of the time is not the bread that Jesus is offering. Jesus says, I am the bread you're looking for. Feast on me and be satisfied. I love this quote by theologian F.F. Bruce. He said, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. Guys, as your pastor, I could stand before you this morning and tell you, Story after story of how that's been true in my life. So many times when I was asking God to change my circumstances, but he refused to because he knew it wouldn't be the answer to my soul hunger. He was trying to offer me more of himself, his unconditional love, his grace, his tender mercy, 
And I was like, I want to bypass your overtures. If you're not going to give me what I want to, to change my circumstances, I'll figure out how to do it on my own. And the frustration built because life wasn't going my way. And people became objects to control and manipulate, to bend to my will, to get what I felt like I had to have to be okay. While my connection with God became distant and cold because we didn't seem to be on the same page. And what I meant by that was he wasn't on my page. Are we working for the right food? Do we spend our days striving for the food of this world that spoils or the food of God that leads to eternal life? We've got a lot more discover to discover as we journey into John 6. We're going to be doing this for several weeks. It's a really long chapter. <laughs> but I just want you to remember that Jesus' constant invitation is to come. Come and follow me. Come and see. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come. And we believe in the one that I've sent you. So as we pray this morning, maybe it would be good as we dive into this journey to take an honest look at what we run to when we realize that in life we're a little off. In counseling terms, I think they call it regulation, right? What do we run to to regulate ourselves to feel okay? Is it Jesus? Or is it something else, a whole slew of things that this world offers or people offer? So as we pray, maybe it's time to just spend some time in just confession and just say, God, here's what I know I've been running to that's not you. Could you teach me how to run to you, how to receive what you have, how to trust, how to believe that what you're going to offer me is going to be what I really need and want? Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you that so often you don't give us what we want, but you offer what you know we need. But Lord, as, as, as humans, we're so distracted by the, the shiny bright lights <laughs> and the promises of this world and the tangible things sometimes that are right in front of us that we can see the next sign, the next wonder to meet our needs. But God, you, you tell us that, that hope in things that we can see is not hope at all. <laughs> That's what faith is. It's believing in things sometimes that are unseen. It's believing that the roots under the ground in our life are going to provide us with the nutrients and the moisture that we need. I thank you for Mary's example that in the presence of God in her home, she had this sense that, you know what? I may never get this opportunity again to have Jesus here. 
There'll be a meal tomorrow. <laughs> I, want, I don't want to miss his words today. God, help us to be honest about the things that we run to. They don't surprise you. You're well aware. But teach us how to cling to you in a different way than we ever have. God, we just confess and pray that you would continue to just put this on our mind this week as we come to you each day to maybe just really begin to unravel. Why is it this thing that I go to? Even though I know it's not going to meet my need, God, teach me a new way. Invite community into that journey with you. Be honest about your temptations. God is more than enough to meet you in that need. Lord, thank you for your grace that while we were still far from you, you came running after us and you continue to do so. God, your mercies are new every morning for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close?